Does evil have a home? Can a place have such a rich history of violence that it becomes part of its very structure? Or does it become so when it is the site of evil doing? Why are some places more prone to dark mythos than others? Welcome to Strange and Unexplained with me, Daisy Egan. I'm a writer and an actor who doesn't really believe in ghosts and goblins, but isn't about to go pitching a tent in woods that are known for its ghosts and goblins. Just because I don't believe in it doesn't mean it doesn't exist. And Lord knows I've been wrong about a lot of things, so I'm not going to press my luck. Today, we'll pack our hiking bags, strap on our sturdy hiking boots, and head into the Bridgewater Triangle, a place so haunted it makes the Bermuda Triangle look like a kiddie pool. Don't forget your safety whistles. Turns out I could easily visit the Bridgewater Triangle if I were the intrepid kind. Its southeastern point in Rehoboth, Massachusetts is a little more than 30 minutes from my house. Its northern point is in Abingdon, Massachusetts, about an hour south of Boston, and its southwestern point is near Freetown, Mass, giving it an area of about 200 square miles, albeit in a triangle shape. <laughs> Geometry, am I right? Who understands it? Literally no one. And whereas the Bermuda Triangle is known for mysteriously sucking in and chewing up boats and the occasional UFO sighting, according to a 2017 story in the journal Inquirer by journalist Tom Breen, the Bridgewater Triangle is allegedly host to, quote, prehistoric birds, human-ape hybrids, phantom hitchhikers, mysterious rock carvings, haunted one-room schoolhouses, and topping it all off, a band of malevolent elf-like creatures called puckwudgies, end quote. The name Bridgewater Triangle was coined in 1983 by cryptozoologist and author Lauren Coleman in his book Mysterious America, The Ultimate Guide to the Nation's Weirdest Wonders, Strangest Spots, and Creepiest Creatures. Coleman noticed a bunch of reports coming out of this area and, I guess, whipped out his trusted protractor and was like, by gum, that's a triangle if I ever saw one. I guess he was lucky it wasn't a trapezoid. The Bridgewater Trapezoid sounds a lot less menacing. Everyone knows triangles are the scariest shape. Cue the angry DMs from furious triangleists. Our first stop on our tour of the Bridgewater Triangle is the Hockamock Swamp, the largest swamp in New England. Hockamock is surrounded by dense woods, which means it's hard to get to and hard to navigate, making it a sanctuary for all kinds of wildlife, including 13 rare and endangered species. Some evidence of human activity around the swamp dates back 9,000 years. And because of how hard it is to get in and through the swamp, some believe it's the perfect habitat for some spooky specters and creepy crawlies. Named by the Wampanoag people, who would have been in the area at least 9,000 years ago, Hakamak means the place where spirits dwell. And then the European colonizers came and were like, uh, there's something new and unfamiliar to us, it must be evil and named it Devil's Swamp. Turns out, though, the colonists may have not been all that wrong to be afraid of the swamp. Apparently, the spirits the Wampanoag referred to included, quote, the evil spirits that struck terror into the hearts of the colonists, end quote, according to local wildlife and conservation journalist Ted Williams in his book History of the Hockamock. But the Wampanoag believed the swamp was a holy place whose good spirits led hunters to big game like moose and deer, as well as being a place that was rich in food itself. 
archaeologists once discovered an 8,000-year-old tribal burial ground on an island in the swamp. The Hakamak Swamp was also home to unspeakable tragedy and bloodshed in 1675 during King Philip's War or Medicom's Rebellion, which largely took place in a region near the swamp. Wampanoag Chief Medicom led a 14-month campaign to try to resist English authority and drive the English out. Spoiler alert, he didn't win. King Philip's War is considered the bloodiest war per capita in U.S. history. Of course, this wasn't the U.S. in 1675. With several hundred colonists' deaths and thousands of indigenous killed, wounded, or enslaved, 75% of the local native people were wiped out in the war, essentially paving the way for colonists to expand their settlements and eventually take the whole country. Cool history, bro. And yes, yes, I know nearly every culture has engaged in really awful shit in the name of claiming land from others. I have read a book or two. It doesn't make it right or mean that I can't be ashamed or infuriated about our particular history of engaging in really awful shit in the name of claiming land from others. Because of the catastrophically awful loss of human life in and around Hockamock Swamp, people who are apt to believe in these sorts of things speculate that negative energy continues to permeate the area, leaving it haunted. But before we venture further into the Bridgewater Triangle, let's stop to read a strange poem carved into a rock at the swamp's edge hundreds of years ago. In 1900, a local man named Edgar P. Howard came across a stone covered in vines with words carved into it. Clearing away the vines, Howard uncovered a poem etched neatly into the rock. It read, This rock I visited so oft, I wish may here remain. When yon brick shaft on leafy sprague overlooks no more the plain, and let the trees around it grow to stripe its sides with shade as on the quiet August days when I these letters made. And then he discovered a second rock not too far away with this poem etched in it. All ye who in future days walk by Nuncatasset stream, love not him who hummed his lay, cheerful to the parting beam, but the beauty that he wooed in this quiet solitude. Listen, I'm no connoisseur of poetry, but I did take one semester of nature writing freshman year of college, and while most of my time was spent trying desperately to get boys who weren't worthy of my attention to like me, I think I remember enough to say that these two poems are most definitely about... nature? At any rate, the poems are believed to have been written and etched by Reverend Thomas Otis Payne in the 1860s, and while the poems themselves may not speak of specters and goblins, Reverend Payne belonged to a religious sect inspired by the teachings of Emanuel Swedenborg, who you might remember from the Fox Sisters episode as being one of the people who helped bring about the spiritualism movement of the 19th century. So, it's fitting that a man who believed that the dead were all around us and that we would one day be able to learn how to communicate with them might etch these words into stone in a place that many believe is filled with its own ghosts. 
Cryptozoologist Lauren Coleman was first drawn to study the area he would later name the Bridgewater Triangle when he noticed the unusually high number of UFO sightings in the area. And while we generally tend to think of UFO sightings as a uniquely modern phenomenon, apparently people were reporting seeing them in Massachusetts as early as 1908. I should caveat that statement real quick to say white people, as there's good evidence that some Native people believed in aliens. Though whether that's because they saw UFOs or it was just part of their lore, I don't know. Okay, so, in 1908, two gravediggers said they saw what looked like a giant lantern hovering in the sky above Bridgewater for almost 40 minutes. Now, it bears mentioning that the night these two men claimed to have seen this whatever it was just so happened to be Halloween. And you know me. I don't like to be that guy. (laughs) Yes, I do. But does anyone else think it's possible that maybe they drummed up this story in order to have a spooky Halloween tale? And wouldn't anyone else have reported seeing a giant lantern in the sky? That said, one would think a couple of grave diggers might come up with a story having more to do with dead bodies than celestial lights. I don't know if there were any other sightings reported after that, but I do know that UFO sightings seemed to spike in the 1970s. Not just in Bridgewater, but all over the states. I'm not not saying it had anything to do with all the drugs everyone was taking in the 70s or the fact that Close Encounters was released in the 70s. On November 2nd, 1973, the staff and diners at Joseph's Restaurant in Rehoboth, Massachusetts, experienced a brief power outage in the diner. When the lights came back on, there were two large, perfect circles seemingly stamped into the dirt behind the restaurant. And then, in March of 1979, at Highway Junction 24 and 106, at the center of what would become known as the Bridgewater Triangle, local radio host Jerry Lopes and Stephen Spraccia said they saw a UFO hovering above the highway. Lopes recounted the story for a documentary called The Bridgewater Triangle for Bristol County Media. It looked like a baseball home plate, and there was a series of lights on it. It looked like it had a little cord or something hanging off and sparks were coming off of it. I almost felt like I could throw a rock at the thing. It seemed so close to me. Apparently, the thing was huge. Spraccia said that it was about the width of five 747s wing to wing and lined with lights. He was also quick to point out that up until this point, he had been an absolute skeptic and thought that people who claimed to have seen UFOs were either wired wrong, as it were, or were seeking attention. The two men didn't come forward right away, which is understandable. Claiming you saw a giant UFO doesn't usually do wonders for your journalism career. But over the next week or so, more and more people came forward to say they had seen the same thing. And then an article appeared in a local paper with quotes from other people in the area who'd seen it. They had an artist do a rendition of it based on the various descriptions, and the end result was pretty much exactly what Lopes and Spraccia said they saw. In the summer of 99, Courtney Cullen, a local resident, was having a cookout when she saw weird lights. She told the Boston Globe, Suddenly there was noise, wicked loud, and next there were lights in the sky. No color, just bright lights. They were descending fast, like coming straight at the house behind where we were at the cookout. And just as it seemed that the lights were going to crash into the house, they darted sideways at this unbelievable speed, and soon they just disappeared. 
But what I also remembered is that soon after we saw the lights, more than one helicopter appeared in the sky, in the area where the lights were. And in 2011, Raynham resident Derek Holt actually got footage of some glowing orbs in the sky that seemed to hover, change color, and then apparently sprout wings. He later told the Bridgewater Triangle documentary, I first started seeing these orbs in the sky, and I would stare at them and try to really see them. And I couldn't really picture them with my own eyesight, so I actually bought a small little camera and I started filming them. I caught one here at the dog track, I'd say probably directly above me. I don't know how high. It would flash blue, red, green, pulsating lights. We'll have the video on our socials for you to see for yourselves. Sure, we've got plenty of spirits and aliens, but a creepy triangle of paranormal activity wouldn't be complete without... Bigfoot! Again, back in the 70s, and again having nothing to do with drugs, I'm sure, there was a whole bucket full of reports of some kind of giant hairy creature walking on two legs, terrorizing local farmers, killing pigs and sheep. Police and their dogs searched Hockamock Swamp for two days and found nothing. Of course, two days doesn't really seem like enough to search such a reportedly impenetrable swamp, but hey, what do I know? Incidentally, I hope you don't try to answer that question every time I ask it. It's rhetorical, and the answer is not much. Anyway. Some people thought the creature might have been a bear, but it had been a long time since bears lived in that area. According to Lauren Coleman, quote, very reputable citizens, end quote, claim to have seen this creature, which I suppose is meant to inspire faith in the account. Although everyone knows it's usually the town weirdo who keeps warning everyone of monsters that everyone ignores specifically because they're a weirdo until the monster is in their living room gobbling up the family dog. So when it comes to which citizens to rely on, in the case of aliens and big feet, I'm going with the town weirdo. At any rate, in addition to claimed sightings, there were also apparently definitive tracks found near the woods where these reputable citizens said the creature lumbered off into. Frustratingly, though, in his book Weird New England, Coleman doesn't elaborate on the tracks. It would be helpful to know if the tracks did indeed turn out to be bear tracks or if they were, you know, Bigfoot tracks. Coleman also recounts a story of a local police officer doing a stakeout one night to try to determine what the large hairy creature was that was, quote, walking upright, thrashing about in the backyards and woods of the neighborhood, end quote. Coleman wrote that, quote, entirely without warning, something picked up the rear of his car. The policeman spun the car around, and when he flashed his searchlight, he saw something that looked like a huge bipedal bear running away between the houses. Then on April 8th, police officers reportedly found tracks after a seven-foot-tall creature was seen. Nothing was found in further searches, end quote. Local resident Joe D'Andrade told the Boston Globe in 2005 that back in 1978, when he was 24, he was standing on the banks of a pond near Hockamock when... For some reason, I had to turn around. There was a chill or something inside of me. And I turned around, and there, off to the right, maybe 200 yards away, there was this... I don't know what it was... It was a creature that was all brown and hairy, like a big apish and man thing. 
was making its way for the woods, but I didn't stick around to watch where it was going. I ran for the street. D'Andrade organized a few searches around the area and, as per usual, found not a single trace. Another local resident, John Baker, claims that one night as he was paddling his canoe in the swamp, he heard what he thought was a large animal crashing through the woods. He then says he saw a, quote, large hairy beast wade into the water and pass not a few yards away from him. He said he knew the beast wasn't human because it smelled, quote, like a skunk, musty and dirty. To which I might point out, have you ever smelled a teenage boy? Then again, a teenage boy was probably not wading into the swamp in the middle of the night. Then again, again, one has trouble imagining anyone but chugging beer, and teenage boys apparently do that. So, who really knows? Baker said that whatever the creature was, he never saw it before that night or ever again. But it's not just hairy hominids that lurk in the murky shadows in the Bridgewater Triangle. In 1970, according to Lauren Coleman, a police officer said, Nothing surprises us much anymore. Last week, a motorist ran over an eight-foot boa constrictor. We still haven't learned where that came from. And in 1939, workers completing a project on King Philip Street at the edge of Hockamock Swamp reported seeing a huge snake about six inches in diameter lift its head and then slink into the swamp. Local legend says that a huge snake like that one appears every seven years. I don't know if local fact backs that up, though. Maybe it's just me, but rare snakes popping up in a swamp don't really do much to raise my blood pressure. I can easily imagine some harried single mother coming home after working two shifts and finding her freezer once again full of dead mice and finally getting so fed up with her shiftless, good-for-nothing 23-year-old son who lives in the basement and swears to God, Mom, Bitcoin is a sure bet that she takes his beloved pet snake, Mr. Death, and releases him into the local swamp. Back in the 70s, again, in addition to reports of a hairy bear-type creature walking on two legs and killing local farm animals, there were also reports of lions, or so-called phantom panthers, which, as far as I can tell, are either an alien creature that have also been said to stalk around Dayton, Ohio, of all places, or are characters in a card game called Heroes of Camelot, which looks basically like an adult version of Pokemon? Anyway... Local police in Rehoboth organized an actual lion hunt in 1972 when cow and sheep carcasses were found with claw marks raked across their body. Why said lion wouldn't have eaten said cows and sheep? Instead of just apparently killing them for sport, who knows? There were apparently casts made of these mysterious animals' tracks and dogs and helicopters used in the search. But alas, nary a lion nor a phantom panther were found. Then, in 1976, the thing that was first a bear and then a lion and or a phantom panther was now a huge black killer dog. According to Lauren Coleman in his book Mysterious America, this dog, quote, was reported in Abingdon in the Bridgewater Triangle. The dog ripped out the throats of two ponies. Local firefighter Philip Kane, the owner of the ponies, saw the dog standing over the bloody carcasses gnawing at their necks. He said that the dog eluded extensive police searches and, for a period of several weeks, terrorized the community. 
During the three days that followed the killing of the ponies, police received a thousand telephone calls. School children were kept in at recess, and many homeowners and storekeepers armed themselves with rifles. Last time this dog was seen was when police officer Frank Kern sighted it along some railroad tracks. The officer fired a shot but missed. The black dog merely turned away and walked off slowly in the other direction, and perhaps into another dimension. End quote. By the 90s, this creature had become a, quote, light tan cat the size of a Great Dane, end quote. The cat was named the Mansfield Mystery Cat. According to Coleman, quote, local officials took the sightings very seriously, especially after Fire Chief Edward Sliney had a mystery feline encounter of his own, end quote. What this encounter was, Coleman does not go on to say. How his editor let him get away with that may be the biggest mystery of all. To be fair, I have rather flippantly suggested that these reports added up to one creature who somehow morphed from a bear to a lion to a ghost panther to a dog to a cat. But I think we're supposed to understand that these are indeed separate animals. I don't know what's less believable, frankly. One animal that morphs into at least five, including a mythical one, or that all five of these animals are living in a 200-mile radius inside Massachusetts and no one has ever gotten a good, solid look at any of them. But one of the most famous cryptid stories to come out of the Bridgewater Triangle is of a decidedly more celestial beast. Police Sergeant Tom Downey was driving home toward Easton when he saw a massive winged creature with an 8 to 12 foot wingspan fly up and over the trees of Hockamock Swamp. He reported the sighting and police sent a patrol car to the area to search for it, but alas, it was gone. Despite being teased for two weeks about the encounter, Sergeant Downey stuck by his story. Now, I should point out two important facts about this story. One, it took place in 1971, which, if you've been following along at home, I'm not not saying was a time in the U.S. when the weeds were plentiful and the mushrooms found great purchase, if you catch my drift. Also, the alleged sighting took place at night. Now... I'm not suggesting that an officer of the law was partaking in illegal substances and was maybe in an altered state when this incident occurred. That would be irresponsible of me. Hey, maybe the Mothman decided to take a vacation near Cape Cod. Anyway. Now, my favorite Hockamock cryptid is the Puckwudgie, because the word is adorable. It's actually a Wampanoag word, and I love it. This is coming from a person whose native language includes words like dingus, squeegee, and cattywampus. A puckwudgie, despite sounding like a stuffed animal you'd see advertised on YouTube, translates to, quote, little wild man of the forest, end quote. It's basically a Native American version of a leprechaun, as far as I can tell, albeit covered in hair and more closely resembling a troll. They are dwarf-like hominids that can shapeshift, lure people to their deaths, disappear at will, shoot poison arrows, though out of what, I don't know, and generally make your life miserable if you get on their wrong side. According to Wampanoag lore, Puckwudgies were helpful and friendly toward humans until, for some reason, the humans decided they were actually a nuisance and got a giant to rid the world of them. Unfortunately for humans, a few Puckwudgies survived and they were like, oh, that's how it's gonna be, and have been fucking shit up ever since. 
sounds to me like a metaphor for the perils of getting rid of things just because you don't understand them. Mythical creatures and morphing animals who create chaos are one thing, and UFOs are another. Most of these accounts, after all, not only took place in the 70s when everyone's rose-colored glasses, as it were, may have been clouding their vision, and none of them are really verified. Of course, the government is never going to actually verify that UFOs exist, but we know they know what's really going on, man. But murders. Murders most foul. Those are a whole different ballgame. While Hockamock is the largest swamp in New England, Freetown State Forest is the largest forest in Massachusetts, and it sits, of course, inside the Bridgewater Triangle. Over the years, Freetown State Forest has had its fair share of murders, dumped bodies, and rumors of satanic activities. According to a piece on the blog Boston.com called Inside the Bridgewater Triangle, some believe that Freetown is home to so much inhumanity because of the negative energy permeating the Bridgewater Triangle because of, you know, all the genocide. Others are like, look, the forest is really dense and super easy to get to. It's kind of a no-brainer if you're looking for a place to cover up your nefarious activities. If you're like me, and I have a good feeling a lot of you are, first of all, I'm sorry. And second of all, you know that whenever you drive by woods, you think, I wonder how many dead bodies are in there. It's not always a happy place, my mind, but it's always interesting. In November of 1978, yes, again the 70s, the body of 15-year-old Mary Lou Arruda was found tied to a tree in the Freetown Forest. Mary Lou had been missing for two months before she was found in the woods. Her death was at the hands of a piece of shit who is dead now and doesn't deserve to be remembered. There were other murders connected to the area the police believed had something to do with satanic worship. Freetown police detective Alan Alvis told the Bridgewater Triangle documentary, I was a young patrolman way back in the early 70s. We patrolled the state forest and we used to come across these people in robes and stuff. And the lieutenant used to tell me, oh, those are leftover hippies from the 60s camping out because we used to see all kind of weird things over there. But then some hunters and people used to go around and we'd find some evidence of satanic graffiti on the rocks and animal bones. I started looking into it and we learned that it was some ritualistic satanic activity. After I discovered it, the activity started getting even worse with dead animals, cruelty to animals and so forth, and stories and rumors of child molestation and even rumors of homicides and so forth. In February of 1980, finally out of the 70s, a woman was picked up by police for being a sex worker. The officers apparently wanted her to take them to the location of satanic rituals she'd said she'd attended in the woods. She was sobbing and incoherent, but said if her pimp, whom she called Satan, found out she'd been talking to police, he'd kill her. She asked them to drop her off at a church, which they did. They then apparently didn't offer her any kind of protection or help from the pimp she called Satan, and two months later, parts of her body were found in the woods. According to a 2021 piece in Rolling Stone magazine, quote, Marsden's death was one of three so-called satanic cult killings that occurred in late 1979 and early 1980 in Fall River. 
a historic mill city notorious for the axe murders of Lizzie Borden's father and stepmother, end quote. There really was no reason, in my opinion, for the author of this piece to mention Lizzie Borden at all, except to make the reader go, oh yeah, it must be a cursed part of the country. Anyway, the article continues, quote, Two locals were convicted in Marsden's killing. Carl Drew, the pimp Marsden said was Satan, and Robin Murphy, a 17-year-old who law enforcement said was a fearsome pimp in her own right, and a competitor of Drew's, end quote. So, as with most satanic panic stories, it seems this one also has nothing to do with actual Satan worship except that an asshole pimp-slash-murderer called himself Satan because he thought it would make him seem cool and menacing. Not to be outdone by Hockamock Swamp, though, Freetown State Forest also has plenty of its own paranormal stuff, too. Berkeley local John Brighton believes that one of the most haunted places in the Triangle in the Freetown Forest is Assinet Ledge, which the Wampanoag used as a lookout. When they were attacked in King Philip's War, Brightman says, the surviving members of the tribe cursed the land. Brightman told the Taunton Gazette in 2011 about the legend of a young woman who killed herself at the ledge because she was supposed to meet her boyfriend there, and he never came. There doesn't seem to be a lot of detail about when this happened, and there isn't a lot of evidence to back it up. And Lord knows young people kill themselves too often, unfortunately, and don't need a haunted place as a catalyst. Brightman said that he himself went to the ledge and found himself suddenly in a daze and crying, teetering on the edge before his friends pulled him back. He believes a spirit told him to jump. But the phenomenon of people being overcome with an urge to jump for no reason when standing at a cliff's edge is pretty well documented and, again, doesn't require the presence of ghosts. Chris Balzano, a writing teacher at Notre Dame High School and the author of the blog Massachusetts Paranormal Crossroads, claims to have found a pattern of cycles of tragedy in the triangle that he thinks is a negative force popping up in different forms. I suppose that might help explain why the 70s saw such a spike in activity. Balzano told the Boston Globe about the legend of the mad trucker who appears out of nowhere on Coppicut Road, blares his horn and yells at motorists. And then, just as quickly as he appears, he's gone. Poof, into the night. I wonder if this is all affiliated with the legend of my mad grandfather, who similarly used to like to blare the horn and yell. But he didn't disappear quickly. He drove slowly away with a long line of traffic tailgating him. Similarly, there is the legend of the disappearing hitchhiker who is seen sometimes along Route 44 in Seekonk. The hitchhiker disappears usually before a helpful motorist can stop, but some have reported driving right through him, though why they proceeded to drive their car through what they thought was a living person, no one explains. And still others have claimed to have actually picked him up, only to have him disappear mid-ride. Seekonk, I should point out, is home to the worst target I have ever visited. Every time I go in there, it looks like a tornado has just swept through. Maybe the disappearing hitchhiker comes in and wreaks havoc every night and the staff has just given up? 
There are a handful of haunted buildings within the Triangle, a long abandoned one-room schoolhouse from which voices can be heard when no one is there, ghosts that plague the students of Bridgewater State University, mostly just being annoying, turning the cold water on during showers, fucking with the theater students by stealing their scripts and moving their props around. Although, I would say, having met both college students and actors, one thinks it more likely they're losing their own scripts and putting props back in the wrong place no matter how many times their poor put-upon stage manager reminds them that all their props are clearly marked and outlined in the prop table, people. Please put things back in the right place. I can't be everywhere all at once. So what gives? What is it about this triangle of land that seems to attract so much otherworldly attention? Chris Pittman, a so-called student of the paranormal, which is, I'm pretty sure, just a fancy and self-appointed title that means someone who loved Ghostbusters too much, told the Boston Globe, The way the swamp evolved, from glacial activity to the mounting of alluvium deposits to the death and decay of plants that created the swamp's thick peat bedding, may have resulted in a gravitational anomaly that allows for the weird and unexplained. I am fairly confident that almost any place you find the paranormal humming, there is also a vortex where gravity and energy aren't behaving normally. Chris Balzano, the writing teacher who noticed the cycles of bad stuff in the triangle, agrees that there's a natural vortex, but thinks the violence done in and around the area makes it even worse than your average, everyday vortex of evil. But, and I've made this argument before, If horrendous violence was all it took for a place to be riddled with monsters and ghosts, at this point, you'd be hard-pressed to find a single place on Earth that wasn't crawling with them. We are a violent people, we humans. Death and injustice are our legacy. Once again, folks, as with so many of these supernatural phenomena, I think we may be looking at a case of collective human guilt and fear of nature and mortality projected outward and recreated as a physically manifested breeding ground for monsters, aliens, violence, and the unholy victimization of innocent people. I guess it's useful to take all our existential dread and questions, doubts and fears, and dump them in one space. One triangular wooded space. Look out. The terrain of the human subconscious is dark and full of terrors. Next time on Strange and Unexplained. It was one of the biggest, splashiest murder cases of the 1990s. And even though the case is still unsolved, everyone seems sure they know who killed Jean Benet Ramsey. We have a lot of fascinating and bizarre stories to share with you this season, but we want to hear your episode suggestions as well. If you have an idea for something we should cover, whether it's a well-known case or something that happened in your town that the world hasn't heard about yet, go to our website, strangeandunexplainedpod.com, and fill out the contact form. Strange and Unexplained is a production of the Obsessed Network. This episode was produced by Becca DiGregorio, Natalie Grillo, and Angela Palladino. This episode was written by me, Daisy Egan, researched by Jess McKillop, and edited by Eve Kerrigan. Our audio mixer and engineer is Jennifer Swatek. Our voice actors for this episode were Marquise Filson and Ryan Garcia. 
We're going on tour. To check out tour dates and get your tickets, go to our website, strangeandunexplainedpod.com. If you like our show, please help us out by rating and reviewing us on Apple Podcasts. It really does help. And if you don't, do something else. Follow us on Instagram and Twitter. We are at SNUPod. And check out the Strange and Unexplained Facebook page to join in the conversation. 